0: It's incredible when uh, we think about these stories that we're so familiar with in the Bible that there's nothing in creation that God can't command that it won't obey. Ravens obeyed the Lord when we, we know their instinct would be to just eat that meat themselves, and yet they obey God. They don't eat it. They bring it to Elijah. Later, we see Jesus command the wind and the waves, and even wind and waves can obey the Master when they hear his voice. It's incredible. These things... That God can do nothing is impossible for him. Would you bow with me once more and let's ask the Lord's blessing as we enter his word. Father in heaven we come to you the creator of heaven and earth you have made all things by your word they came into being and so as we read these stories in your word the Bible we recognize that you the creator have all authority to speak to your creation that birds will hear your voice and obey and do something entirely against their nature. The wind and the waves will hear your voice and obey and do something that seems entirely impossible. And yet, Lord, throughout your word, we see this unfold. And so now, Lord, as we come to your word, we recognize as well that there is something different between your relationship with the creation and your relationship with us. Because you speak your word to us, And you want us to respond you want us to hear and to heed and to do and yet unlike with the birds unlike with the wind and the waves you give us a choice you will not force us to hear your word and obey you leave that up to us and so father this morning as we hear your word i pray that you will work in us a spirit that is willing to hear and that we will exercise our will to respond accordingly respond in the way that you would have us and so lord i pray that you would Through this time, have us respond with a deeper hunger for you and nothing less. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Begin this morning with a favorite story of mine. The stories of a kindergarten teacher who once gave an assignment to her children to draw a picture of a celebrity, um, an important person, someone who had impacted their life in a positive way. And so the children began to draw and the teacher began walking around the class looking at some of the pictures the children were drawing. She looked over one child's uh, shoulder, and she saw he was beginning to draw a picture of the president. Another child she saw was beginning to draw a picture of their favorite athlete, a hockey player. Another child was drawing a picture of their mom. Another was drawing a picture of their dad. And she came across one little boy who was drawing with a... a special amount of intensity and and focus. And she looked over his shoulder and she asked him, Tommy, who are you drawing? Without looking up, Tommy just kept right on drawing and he said, God. And she said, well, Tommy, you know that no one knows what God looks like, right? Without missing a beat, Tommy replied, well, they will when I'm done. (laughs) I love that story. And you have to admire the little boy's confidence. The budding artist in him was confident that he could draw a picture of God. And while the teacher was correct in that no one knows what God looks like in his pure essence, because as John's gospel informs us, no man has ever seen God because God is spirit. However, God has at times made manifest his presence in some visible form. And this is called a theophany. So Theo being for God, Ophany is revelation. So a Theophany is a revelation of God in some visible way. And there is one man who saw more Theophanies, more of the visible and manifest presence of God, than perhaps anyone else in history. And this man, of course, was Moses. In today's text of Exodus 33, in our continuing series through Exodus, The Way Out, we read this incredible statement in Exodus 33, verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. One of the most incredible verses in the Bible, in my opinion. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So here we see that Moses is a man who walked with God, talked with God directly in an intimate and personal way that very, very few ever have before or since. And yet in this, we hear an echo from God's original design way back in Genesis, where we read that Adam and Eve, they walked and talked with God in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. And so here we see this dynamic of, of face-to-face relationship with God. Of course, their rebellion eventually against God it ruined that intimacy of that face-to-face relationship and it put this separation between now sinful man and holy God. And so to enter God's holy presence in our sinful condition, well let's just say it's a highly dangerous activity. In fact, we see later on in in the story in Exodus as as they go through that people were struck dead by entering the presence of God. Even to see later on the Ark of the Covenant um, in an unworthy manner, people would be struck dead. The presence of God, his holiness, and our sinfulness, it's a dangerous combination for sinful man. And so to do that is, is something that you don't do lightly or glibly or flippantly. But here we see Moses entering the holy presence of God, not just once or twice, but repeatedly. And we see here in Moses a man who simply can't get enough of God. In fact, in our scripture reading this morning, verse 7 to 10 in chapter 33 of Exodus, if you have your Bibles and you haven't turned there yet, please turn there with me. In this text, verses 7 to 10, we read that before the full-scale tabernacle was built, Moses had already set up a special tent of meeting outside of the camp. In this tent of meeting, we're informed anyone could go to this tent to inquire of the Lord. However, we read that whenever Moses would go to the tent of meeting, the pillar of cloud, which was a theophany of God's presence, This pillar of cloud, it led the people as they traveled through the wilderness by day. There was a pillar of fire by night. It was a tangible, visible sign of God's presence leading the people. This cloud that was up on Mount Sinai would actually descend to the tent when Moses would enter and Moses would meet with God in this face-to-face way. We're also told that when this happened, the people would stand and they would watch and they would worship in awe and no wonder. Here's a man who had a connection with God unlike any other. And so in Moses, we see a man granted a special favor and mercy to be able to meet with God in a direct way and live to tell about it. Even more incredible is that we read later on that after these intimate meetings with God, Moses' face would literally be glowing when he returned. And so, just imagine, Moses has met with God, he's coming back, his face is is visibly glowing with some, some glorious radiance of God's presence, and the people were so awestruck of this, so fearful that Moses would cover his face with a veil to hide the glow of God's glory. Now, I know for most of us, certainly, I'm speaking for myself here, I think I would have been content with that. I think I would have been good with that. I don't think I would have been asking for any more of God's presence than that. I mean, why get greedy, right? Why risk being struck down by God's glory as a mere sinful and mortal man? But here we see that Moses, having tasted of the Lord's glorious presence and trusting in his merciful goodness, Moses desired still more of God. And in verse 18, we read this incredible statement. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. In Moses, we see a man who hungered for more and more and more of the very presence and glory of God, regardless of the personal risk. But there's just one problem. The people Moses is leading, they're the problem, because As powerful and as intimate as these these moments with God were for Moses, he needed every last one of them to deal with the people that he was leading because the children of Israel were all rebels at heart. They wanted just enough of God to get by. Exodus 33. Now let's quickly remind ourselves of the context of this passage from the previous sermon in Exodus 32. Moses had just returned from 40 days on the top of Mount Sinai. And when he comes down, he discovers the people having this completely wild and pagan party, worshipping an idol in the form of a golden calf. And though Moses had just interceded with God to save the people from the destruction that they deserve, from immediate destruction and, and damnation, Moses intercedes, God relents, but still there are severe consequences. When Moses sees the golden calf and what the people are doing, he is beyond furious. He smashes the stone tablets of God's law. He then burns the idol, melting it down, grinds it into dust, forces the people to drink the ground up dust. Then he tells the Levites to take their swords, go through the camp, striking down the guilty, and some 3,000 people were killed that day. And chapter 32 ends with this sobering statement. The Lord then struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf. Not a pretty picture, is it? That's how chapter 32 ends. Not a pretty picture. The people are are shaking. The mountain is literally quaking. Moses is furious. God is beyond angry with the people. And again, we see here an echo all the way back from Genesis in the Garden of Eden. For when Adam and Eve sinned, though God chose not to destroy them outright as their sin deserved, he was merciful there were still very painful consequences with both immediate and eternal ramifications. All of creation was though it was going to be torn apart in that moment of sin in the garden, for everything changed in that moment. A creation that was harmonious, that, that was peaceful, now became upset, became agitated. There was a fear of man, killing, death. Everything came into the created order. On top of that, of course, physical death began. Spiritual separation with God, on and on we go with the intense and painful consequences. And in Exodus 33, we see much the same for Israel. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised an oath to Abraham. Now I want you to notice in this first verse that's very easy to skip over. But I want you to look at it again and take note that at this point, God is not even taking ownership of the people. He says to Moses, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. (laughs) This is God speaking, and he's saying to Moses, yeah, you brought these people up. They're yours. You can have them. Now, of course, both Moses and God know full well that Moses didn't do that. Moses didn't send the ten plagues. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. Moses didn't send manna from heaven to feed the people. Moses did none of that. God did all of that. But it's helpful here to remember that God is also testing Moses to see how he would respond. Nevertheless, it doesn't change the fact that God is so fed up with the people at this point that the only reason he was still going to give them the promised land was because, as he says, his promise to Abraham. He's a promise-keeping God, He'd made a promise to Abraham, and he says, For Abraham's sake, I will still do this, even though I am so disgusted with the people. Verse 2. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All the ites. They're all getting driven out ahead of Israel. Sounds good, right? Then verse 3 begins. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. So in the light of Israel's flagrant rebellion, consider God's incredible mercy in his offer. Moses, listen, I'm going to send a powerful angel ahead of you. They're going to drive all the enemies out before you from the land so that you don't even have to fight. All you have to do is just waltz on in, take and enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey. So how about it, Moses? Will you take the deal? Well, what about us? What about you? Would you have taken that deal? Sounds pretty good, right? It, does, it sounds like a very, very merciful offer. I think most of us would have snapped that offer up. We would have jumped right at it. We would have thought, hmm, powerful angel, check. Defeated enemies, check. Getting the promised land without even having to fight for it, done. Where do I sign? Sounds good. But there was something that God deliberately left out of the deal, and we keep reading verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, period, but I will not go with you. I will not go with you. Why? Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Ouch! I mean... Think about this. God is literally saying to the people, you are so stiff-necked, so rebellious, that for your own safety, it's better I don't go with you because chances are extremely high you guys are going to blow it again, you're going to rebel again, and I'm going to have to destroy you. Whew. Sometimes the truth hurts, right? Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's so blunt and in the teeth, right in the nose, you just are reeling. Well, the people are reeling because God specifically tells Moses, tell this to the people. And he does. And the next verse we read, the people are distraught. They are mourning because God said, I will not go with you. So think about the deal again, God's offer. Complete victory and success, but I am not going to give you my presence. Now, would you still take that deal? Would you take it? Consider this, modern-day context, your life. You can have your dream career and wild success. You can marry your ideal husband or wife, if you haven't already. You can have it all, great financial success. You can have popularity, fame, whatever your heart desires. Every good thing that you could possibly want, it's yours on a silver platter all of God's blessings, but none of God's presence. Would you take that deal? Well, there's one man who wouldn't. Moses. Moses would not take that deal. We jump ahead to verse 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses knew God in a personal, face-to-face, intimate way. And having tasted and seen of the Lord's goodness, of the Lord's mercy, of the Lord's glory, Moses was not about to settle for anything less. And he replies to God's offer with this. If you're not going, then I'm not going. I don't want your blessings without your presence. And what about us? Do we hunger for God that way? Or do we want just the blessings of this life, but God's presence is kind of an afterthought? What about us? Having tasted once of God's goodness, do we desire and seek more of Him? Or are we content with just the little bit that we've already received? Are we content with just enough of God's presence to get by? Well, there's a story told that when electricity first became available in this remote, remote rural area, one woman went to great trouble and great expense to have electricity run to and installed in her home, the first one in the whole area. And a few months after the wiring was installed and the power was turned on, the power company noticed that the home didn't use very much power at all. Fearing that there was a problem, the company sent out someone to read the meter and to check to make sure that everything was working properly. And so the meter reader went there and he saw that the power was indeed working properly. And so he asked the woman who had paid for all of this, do you use the electricity in your home? The woman replied, well, of course we do. We turn it on every night long enough so that we can see to light our lamps. Then we turn it off. Think about that for a second. Great expense to get this electricity in her house, to get the lights on, and, and use it just long enough to get light to do things the old way without the power and just light those old kerosene lanterns. Crazy, right? None of us would do that. No, none of us would be so, so foolish to just go to all that work to use just enough to get by and do the rest the old way, would we? Would any of us do that with our spiritual lives, with, with the Lord? Would any of us come to the Lord for salvation and then say, okay, Lord, thanks for saving me, but I got the rest from here? Would any of us be so foolish? We flick on the light for a Sunday morning worship service. We flick on the light for a quick prayer or maybe a Bible verse here or there. But then just as quickly, we flick the light right back off again and go back to living the majority of our lives the old way. That is a trap for so many Christians. The hunger for more of God's presence and glory is mostly absent. This was Israel's approach to God. They wanted God's presence with them, but at a safe distance. Moses, however, Moses was different. Moses is someone that I believe we should model ourselves after because Moses was not content with God at a safe distance. Moses desperately desired more of God, even if it cost him his very life. And you know who was pleased with Moses' desire for more? God. God was pleased. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Wow. What incredible words to come from God the Father. Aren't these the very words that every last one of us longs to hear from him? I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Oh, my friends, that's what I want to hear from the Father more than anything else. I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Because that's what makes all the difference. That's the difference between heaven and hell. That's the difference between life and death, is that God knows me by name. And more than that, I want God to be pleased with me. And what is it that pleases God so much? What is it that pleased God about Moses? Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this. It is impossible to please God without faith. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We see this in Moses. Moses had faith in spades. Moses had had faith that, that most of us would just... Just wish we could have a fraction of Moses' faith. He had it in spades, in buckets. And then on top of that faith, Moses was earnestly seeking God. And guess what that did for God? God was pleased. God was pleased with Moses. He was pleased with his faith. He was pleased with his earnest, desperate desire for him. And so out of that, God was so pleased that in verse 18 we read, Moses makes this incredibly bold request, almost a demand. He says, now show me your glory. And rather than putting Moses in his place, we see that God is delighted to reward Moses by revealing as much of himself to Moses as Moses could possibly handle without dying. I love the way that the commentator Matthew Poole puts it. He says, Thou shalt see the shadow of my glory as much as you can bear, though not as much as you desire. Verse 19, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So far as we know, this is the only man in the entirety of the Old Testament, perhaps in all of Scripture, who got to see God in this way. And God made this special provision for Moses because Moses had the audacity, the boldness of all men to say to the Lord, show me your glory. Incredible. Would you have that boldness? I know I wouldn't. Say, Lord, show me your glory. I don't care if it kills me. And God actually says to him, if I show you my face, it'll kill you. You're going to die. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And when I pass by, you can see my back and my glory. Incredible. Here Here is something from this whole account that I want you to remember this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. God wants to be known by you. God wants to be known by you. God desires for you to know him. And so even though Moses asking this seems so bold and so crazy, God was delighted by it. Here is a man who wants to know me so much, he's willing to risk it all to see my glory. God wants to be known by us. And so he is delighted to show as much of himself to us as we can possibly bear. Moses so desired to see, know, and experience God as he was humbly able, that he was willing to risk death to do so. And God revealed himself to Moses in a way that no man had ever seen before. So let me ask you, where is the desire in your life today? Where is the desire for God in your heart today? If you had to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, where would it be? One non-existent, 10 like Moses, where would you rank yourself? How deep is your desire to see God? How how fervent are you in your prayers to say, Lord, I've tasted of your goodness, but I want more. I want more of you. I have a deep desire to know you, to see more of your beauty, more of your glory in a deeper way. If you had to rank yourself today and you were just brutally honest, where would you put yourself between 1 to 10 today? Think about that and take that to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, if I'm a 3 today, can you make me a 4? If I'm a 4 today, can you maybe make me a 6? Because I want to know you more and more deeply. It said... That the great Greek philosopher Socrates once had a young man approach him. And this young man said to Socrates, Can I be one of your disciples? Because I want to know wisdom and increase in knowledge. I'll do whatever it takes. And Socrates, by this time, was a wise old sage. He took one look at the young man and he says, Follow me. And so the young man follows him and they enter into the waters of a river nearby. And others were standing on the shore watching as Socrates then took this young man, took his head and submerged it under the water for 15 seconds. When the young man came out of the water dripping wet, Socrates asked him, what do you want? The young man said, wisdom, I want wisdom. Socrates then took the young man one more time, he put his head under the water a little bit longer this time, 30 seconds. The young man came out gasping for air this time, spluttering. Socrates asked, what do you want? Wisdom, I want wisdom, the young man replied again. A third time, Socrates dunked the young man's head under the water, and this time he held him down. He kept him under there what seemed like forever. His hands began to fling and to flail, and the people watching from shore were beginning to get worried, thinking, Socrates is going to kill him. He's going to drown him. And finally, when he let the young man up out of the water, Spluttering, gasping, Socrates again calmly asked him, Young man, what do you want? Air! I want air! To that, Socrates replied, When you desire wisdom like you now desire air, you will have it. Our spiritual hunger for God works in a very similar way. Psalm 42 verse 1 says, As the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul longs after you, O God. You see, when we desire God as desperately as the very air in our lungs, when we desire God the way a thirsty, parched deer just dives into that life-giving water, when we seek him that way, then God is pleased to reveal more of himself to us, which will ultimately transform us. 2 Corinthians three seventeen to 18 explains further what this means for Christians today. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, remember back to how Moses' face literally glowed after meeting with God so that he would veil his face to hide the glory. Well, now, what the writer here is saying that through putting faith in Jesus Christ, God is so pleased with us that he gives us his abiding presence through the Holy Spirit, actually coming and living inside of us, so that now with unveiled faces, God's glory radiates outward from our lives. And to think that right now the Spirit of God through faith living in me, living in you by faith in Christ, that same Spirit is now transforming you more and more and more into Christ's glorious likeness. And so that again, we with unveiled faces are reflecting God's glory to others. So think about this. We are transformed by God's glory into God's glory for god's glory incredible isn't it this is god's work now some of you might be thinking right now then why is it taking so long why aren't i changing faster well it could partially be because you're not hungering to spend time in god's presence the way that moses did and you'll say well that's because that's boring and hard And i'll be the first to confess that i used to think that way too I suspect that even Moses thought that way at one point in his life. Seeking the Lord, ah, that's mundane, that's boring, that's hard. But you know what God showed Moses, and what God has been teaching me and showing me more and more, is that spending time with him, and the more that I spend time with him prayerfully in his presence, the more real he becomes. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Miracles, writes, The presence of God is the most real thing we will ever encounter. And God has been teaching me that the more I seek him, the more I desire to seek him. And there's something that occurs that when I've tasted and seen that God is good, it makes me hunger for more of him. And another thing begins to occur, that the more that you hunger for God, the less that you hunger for the things of this world. The more that you hunger for God, the less that you hunger for the temptations and the idols and all the other things that compete for him. My friends, this is not an accident. This is God's design. God made you for himself. And anything less than his intimate presence will not satisfy your soul. So don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for God's protection, God's provision, or God's promises without his abiding presence. Don't settle for just enough of God to get by. Instead, resolve today, resolve right now, that you won't take a single step forward without him. For when you have God's presence, you have everything you need. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, that you would graciously humble yourself to give us your presence is almost beyond my comprehension. And Lord, when I consider the small glimpses you've given me of your glory and the times when you've just given me an awareness of your presence in a deeper way, Lord, it's almost been too much for me to handle. And yet it's done something that makes me want more. And so I can't even begin to fathom or imagine what Moses experienced with the amount of revelation you gave to him of your divine presence. And yet, Lord, even as I begin to consider it, it does something inside of me. It stirs in me a desire to be more like Moses and to seek you that way. And so I pray, Lord, that as we have come under your word this morning, as we have looked at the example of Moses, I pray that by your spirit you would begin stirring in each one of our hearts a desire to be more like Moses and that we would desire you in a deeper way. I pray, Lord, that as we do this, as we desire you, as we seek you in faith, we know that you will be pleased by that and that you will be pleased to reveal more of yourself to us in your gracious way. And so, Father, I pray that you would reveal more and more of yourself and your beauty and your glory to each one of our lives so that our lives now with unveiled faces may reflect that glory back to the world and back to you.